discovering the mission of God. We're in the third component of this year-long theme, and for several weeks now we've been looking at what is the meaning of the word gospel, and uh, how does that work in the life of the Christian as well as in our mission to the world, mission that is the mission of God. And, And I've reminded you and over and over again that the word gospel simply means good news, and is ultimately found in the one person, Jesus of Nazareth. If you had to define the gospel with one word, you will never go wrong with the answer of Jesus. And of course, when you hear the good news, you have to decide on how you're going to respond to that good news. We all respond in one way or the other. Uh, Dan, as he was uh, reading from uh, the Great Commission in Mark, Mark 16, verse 16, he that believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned I mean you've got to respond either through faith or through saying no I want no part of it when we look at the beginning of our response I I took us to Mark chapter 1 I love Mark 1 because here is kind of the essence of the gospel all contained in one passage the time has come Jesus said the kingdom of God has come near the kingdom of God is the result of this gospel being pronounced to the world If you remember back, we looked at what the gospel was. It began with Jesus. It went from Jesus to Jesus' suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then to the establishment of his kingdom as he is enthroned at the right hand of God as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So the kingdom of God is here. We're a part of it right now. This is one little post of it right here as posts all around the world have been meeting today both to worship and to carry out that mission. But Jesus then responded by saying, what do you do when you understand that particular gospel? And the answer is, you repent and you believe. Now, one of the things I've talked about the last two weeks is, is that if you were raised in churches of Christ, you remember the little five-finger exercise. You know, how do you respond to the gospel? You hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. And so, at growing up, I was taught that re- repentance always followed faith. But one of the things I've tried to explain over the last two weeks is that sometimes faith comes first, sometimes repentance comes first. And it just depends where you are in relationship to hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So sometimes we repent and believe, which is what Jesus said. Sometimes we believe and repent. But today I want us to move to the third component. And and I want to once again say something very important here. We have, in the past, not intentionally, probably more out of ignorance than anything, or carelessness, but we've reduced the gospel so much that we've almost made it into a what's called transactional gospel. And by transactional, I simply mean we treat the gospel very much like we would, say, life insurance or health insurance. You know, you get to a point in life where you realize, you know what, I need life insurance. I I love that commercial on TV right now where the guy has so much life insurance that every time he turns around, somebody in the family is trying to kill him. Have y'all seen that one? I mean, an axe goes by his head, and you know, and, and of course, that's the problem with having that much life insurance. That's why I tell June, I'm not getting that much life insurance, okay? But sometimes that's the way we see response to the gospel. It's like buying insurance. You get it, you got it, and you go on with your life. In fact, one of our five-finger exercises said that we need to not hear, but believe, repent, confess, be baptized, and then live faithfully. 
And that word live faithfully was, again, kind of summarized, be faithful in attendance, give of your means on Sunday, try to give, live a good moral life, as opposed to realizing that what God's trying to do is restore us back into the image of God and restore us back to the purpose God created us, which is to be basically his royal representatives in the world. And so this morning we move to the third of the responses, and I don't want us to look at it transactionally. I don't want us to look at it as simply something we do and it's over with and it's done. No, it's much bigger than that. And, I, and I've even renamed it. I put kind of the name we've always called it, but I think it's so much bigger than that and that the word that we usually use kind of has a hard time expressing its full meaning. And so I call it loyal declaration. We call it confession. Believe, repent, confess. We call it confession. And we all know about confession. I mean, it's been a part of our lives for those of us who were raised in church a long time. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. The Apostle Paul, as he is summarizing there near the end of his life, Timothy's own walk, he said, fight the good fight of the faith. I mean, you've declared your faith in Jesus. Now live it out in your life. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And notice that phrase there, when you made your good confession... Timothy very likely was baptized by Paul. Now, we don't know that for sure, but, but Paul had made his missionary tour up in Asia Minor uh, with Barnabas and then came back the second time with Silas and picked Timothy up as he was going through as a follower, as a disciple, as a kind of a person he was going to mentor in the ministry. But here's Paul, and he says, I remember when you made that good confession in the presence of many witnesses, and I suspect you can remember yours. Mine was on Palm Sunday night, 1970. I'd gone to my mom after church on Sunday and said, Mom, I think I want to be baptized. Mom did what she always did. She said, go talk to your dad. So I went to dad, and I said, Dad, I think I want to be baptized. And dad responded the way always dad responded to me. Well, that's good, son. I'm glad. You know, that's about it. And he said, I'll tell the preacher, and I still remember going to the Iuka Church of Christ up in the very tip-top corner of North Mississippi, and there a year away baptized me into Christ after taking my confession of faith. And so if you've become a Christian, you've probably made that good confession. But here's what I want us to realize, is that confession is very much like faith. If you remember from two weeks ago, I mentioned that you don't just believe about Jesus, you must believe in Jesus. In other words, I can believe that uh, uh, Lee is governor of the state of Tennessee. But whether I believe about him and I believe in him are two very different things. You know, when you believe in someone, it... it causes you to respond in a very different way and we talked about that two weeks ago well faith excuse me confession is the same thing you don't just confess about Jesus you must confess loyalty to or in Jesus you see when I was in the water and I said I believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God yes I was stating a fact about Jesus but more than that and I don't know that I understood it completely at age 11 or 12, or 13, however old you were. Some of us, a lot of us, were quite young. But as I've gotten older, very much like the disciples themselves, I've learned what it meant to confess loyalty to Jesus of Nazareth. You turn over to John chapter 1, you have one of the first confessions found in the New Testament. 
This is a confession by Nathaniel. Nathaniel, we know him as Bartholomew. And Philip had come to him. They were both disciples of John at the time. And he had said, listen, we found the one spoken about by Moses and the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth. And you may remember that Nathaniel responded, Nazareth? Good night. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And uh, I've oftentimes thought, you know, that's kind of what people said about Ripley, Mississippi, where I'm from. You know, can anything good come out of Ripley? Well, you know, I hope so. You know, I know one thing good came out of Ripley, and that was my wife, June. You know, so yeah, some good things can come out of a certain place. Nazareth was kind of this out-of-the-way place, and so people are like, really, Nazareth? But I want you to notice that when, when he meets Jesus, and, and Jesus acts as if he knows him, and he says, how do you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you when you were under the fig tree, which kind of blew Nathaniel's mind because he was by himself under the fig tree, evidently reflecting about God. And his response on hearing that is this, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. But here's the thing you need to understand. We, we read theology into this text. Nathaniel didn't. When Nathaniel says, you are the Son of God, he's not thinking of the second member of the Godhead. There wasn't even a concept that well. I mean, I mean there may have been a concept of Trinity at that time, but not defined or developed the way we think of it. And so the response of Nathaniel is, you're the son of God. More about what he had sung about in Psalm 2, that the king of Israel is also the son of God. It is simply a title given to the king of Israel. And notice, he responds by doubling up and saying, you are the king of Israel. But as Jesus keeps preaching, he begins to move the disciples more and more toward what he understands this declaration of loyalty to be. He'll say, for instance, here in Matthew 10, which is this discussion of the limited commission. He says, if you openly and publicly acknowledge, that word acknowledge is the word confession. Okay? It's the word confession. If you publicly and openly acknowledge me, I will freely, openly acknowledge you before my heavenly Father. We probably need to stop and chew on that one a while. I know that when I was 11 years old and immersed into Christ, the preacher didn't whisper in my ear, right now, Jesus is confessing you before his Father. You want to talk about Father's Day, that's, that's a Father's Day gift right there. Oftentimes when I baptize people, I'll say, I'll say to them, because you've confessed Jesus, he's confessing you. But he goes on to say, but if you publicly deny me, which is going to become important as we see the rest of the story here this morning, because of one particular incident in one of the disciples' life. He said, I'll deny you before my heavenly Father. Now, if you want to understand confession, the pinnacle of this discussion is found in Matthew 16. Matthew's gospel is fascinating. It begins with Jesus being called Emmanuel, which is God with us. It ends with Jesus saying in Matthew 28, verse 20, and surely I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. So it begins with God with us. It ends with God with us. But in the middle, which is Matthew 16, specifically verse 16, he says, it's who Jesus is that lets you know if God is with you or not. And so let's look at this story real quick. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, uh, Stan and, and Rodney's been doing a series on uh, the land of Israel on Sunday morning. Still goes two more weeks, right, Stan? And so, but, and y'all have, have y'all looked at Caesarea, already looked at Caesarea? Caesarea Philippi, here's a map of Israel. And some of y'all like, I don't like maps. Hey, I understand. 
you know. But, but this map will help you understand just a little bit about what was going on. The big body of water you see here at the bottom, that's the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee, uh, maybe twice the size of Ohickory Lake. It's not a great sea, oftentimes called a lake in the Bible. If you'll notice at the very top is Capernaum, where Jesus operated during most of the time of his ministry. It's where Peter and Andrew, James and John were stationed. So they leave from Capernaum and they go due north to Caesarea Philippi, which is about 28 miles away. So just give some perspective. It's like leaving here and going to the Kentucky border. All right? You leave here, head up to Franklin, Kentucky. And so they're going to travel by foot that distance. Now notice up there at the very top, you see Caesarea Philippi. And right to the right of Caesarea Philippi is Mount Hermon. Now Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in Israel. It's in the very tip-top north. Four years ago, I'm traveling up through Galilee, kind of over to the left of the map there, and I look out the side of the bus, and I see this mountain up to the north with snow on top. And I'm like, that's got to be Mount Hermon. And so I hollered at the uh, uh, guide who was with us, and I said, is that Mount Hermon? He said, it is. And I'm like, wow. I mean, it was quite visible from a long way off. Now, Mount Hermon is still the highest point in Israel today has snow most of the time during the winter and into the spring. In fact, it's the only area you can ski at in Israel. You have to go all the way up to the north. And you have this one mountain that is divided between Israel, Lebanon, and Syria today. And, and notice the height of it, 9,200 feet. Clingman's Dome is somewhere around 6,500. Your tallest Rocky Mountains out in Colorado is 1,400. So it's about halfway between Clingman's Dome and the highest of the Rocky Mountains. And so it's a high mountain. And, and what happens is it snows up there. The snow melts during the spring and the summer. It flows down, and in Caesarea Philippi, it comes out of this cave, at least one of the uh, uh, streams do, and it forms the mouth of the Jordan River. That's where the Jordan River comes from. Now this is an artist rendition of what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. If you'll notice the temple on the far left, that temple is the temple of Pan. Pan's the god of, of shepherds, the god of fields, the god of nature. And, and he was being worshipped there. You also had a temple to Augustus Caesar, other gods that you worship there. Very Gentile pagan area. And if you'll notice on that temple to the left, you'll see behind it a cave. That's this cave, this cave that was oftentimes called the gate or, or the entrance into the Hadean world, which explains some of Jesus' comments about the gates of Hades will not prevail against the kingdom of God or overtake the kingdom of God or prevent the kingdom of God. A lot of different ways of looking at that text. But it was here in this setting, you know, where you got all of these different gods, pagan gods being worshipped, that Jesus basically said to the apostles, what about you guys? Notice, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do you think I am? Whether it's in a pagan setting or in the setting of, of the Jewish people. And you remember the response of Peter. Uh, first of all, the apostles themselves say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still some's Jeremiah, one of the prophets. You had a lot of different opinions. Those who said he was John the Baptist included King Herod. Herod, Herod had killed John the Baptist, had him beheaded. And then when Jesus started performing miracles, it kind of freaked Herod out. Herod's thinking, man alive, has John the Baptist come back to life? And that's why he's performing miracles. And so that's one of the things people were saying. Others said Elijah from Malachi 4, 5, the last of the minor prophets, had said before the great day of the Lord, 
God's going to send his prophet Elijah. And so they thought, maybe it's Elijah. Of course, if you go over to chapter 17, Jesus says, no, Elijah was actually John the Baptist. Some said Jeremiah, others, maybe Moses or one of the prophets like Moses. So Jesus says, what about you? What about you? A question every one of us will answer, whether intentionally or unintentionally. What about you? And Peter, of course, responds, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, again, don't read theology into this. When Peter calls him the Son of God, he's doing very much what Nathaniel did. You're the king of Israel. Go back to John 1.49. Son of God equals king of Israel. It is not a theological, you are God incarnate walking on the earth. Because if Peter had thought that, he would have never rebuked Jesus a few minutes later. You remember when Jesus started to say, I've got to go to Jerusalem, suffer, die, be buried, raised the third day. And Peter pulls him aside and says, this will never happen to you. And Jesus called him the devil. Remember that? By the way, you never rebuke God. Bad idea. Which simply tells us that Peter's not there yet. His understanding of Jesus is growing just like yours has and just like mine has. The word for confess is homologia or homologeo. It's a word that literally means confession, profession, promise. But it's more than that. That's the problem I think a lot of us as Christians have. It is not just that we believe this about Jesus, but it is a declaration of our loyalty to that belief. In other words, if I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and I declare it publicly, I'm also declaring something else about how I'm going to live my life in relationship to that truth. And so confession is a declaration of loyalty. And I hope this makes sense to you. A loyalty that grows in commitment. Les Chapman's faith at, at age 11 is nothing like what it is today. Hopefully it has grown over the years just like your faith has. And so our confession is about growing in our commitment, in our confession of our, our loyalty to Jesus toward a goal of being committed with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Now, I want you to notice that word loyalty because we're going to come back to it. Watch how it functions in the text. John 12. John says, listen, there were many, even among the leaders, who believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they wouldn't declare their loyalty. Notice that. They would not openly acknowledge their faith. Why? Because they were afraid they would be put out of the synagogue. Their connection to the synagogue was so strong that fear of losing that kept them from publicly declaring allegiance to Jesus. Watch again. Matthew 26, Peter. Peter, who had made that great confession in Matthew, in Matthew 16, 16, comes back and now, after Jesus has been arrested, they're going to ask him once again, do you know him? And look at what Peter says here. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, this lady says. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. That word deny, by the way, is the exact same word, Matthew 10, 33. Whoever denies me. Peter knew that. You go on a couple of verses later, he denied it again, this time with an oath. I don't know the man. You go down a couple more verses, he denies him a third time, this time with cursing. I don't know the man. And Jesus looks at him, and you remember what Peter did, went out and wept bitterly. 
because he realized what he had done. Found the very opposite direction than what he had done up in Caesarea Philippi. It's easy, easy to confess Jesus when nobody's around. A little bit more difficult when you're fixing to lose something significant to you. Joseph of Arimathea, who goes and takes Jesus' body off the cross. The text says he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Now here's what's so astonishing about that. He was one of the leaders. Look at how Mark describes him. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council. I mean, here's a guy who is a member of the Sanhedrin itself, way up in the ranks, but he knows the danger of him publicly coming out in favor of Jesus. And it's only when he dies that he and Nicodemus decide they've got to take a public stance. And I believe that they're included because that public stance continued and they became followers of the resurrected Jesus. Peter, Acts 2, says, Repent and let each of you be immersed. By the way, this is the Tree of Life version. A Messianic Jewish version. They translate baptism so correct here. You need to repent and be uh, immersed, each one of you. But notice the language there. In the name of Messiah Yeshua. Which is a way of saying you've got to make a declaration that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And we read this and we look back and we don't see through the annals of history just what that meant. For these 3,000 to be baptized in the very shadows of the temple in the name of Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah was to take their lives into their, well, not their hands, but into God's hands. I don't know with 4th of July coming up if you realize it, but every person who signed the Declaration of Independence was declaring themselves traitors to the crown in England. These guys were basically saying, we're putting our lot in for the patriots, and if we lose, we'll probably die, and several of them did. You see, John Hancock was the first one to sign it, if I've read correctly. And when John Hancock put his John Hancock on that piece of uh, paper, he became a wanted man. And, and, And that's what these people did on the day of Pentecost. We need to realize that. Paul... Here he is with Silas. And the accusation is they are all defying Caesar's decree saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Do you realize what happens when you say that I believe in Jesus instead of Caesar? Same as thing true over in Romans 10. We forget that the book of Romans is written to Rome. Phoebe is carrying a letter that if she is discovered by Roman authorities, she's going to be arrested. When it's read in the church, if someone is there hearing this, they're going to be arrested. Why? Look at the quote. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Everybody in Rome knew who was Lord. And it wasn't Jesus, it was Nero. And here you have them being required, in fact, urged, declare that. Believe that Jesus was raised from the dead because that's what's going to save you. I love the voices translation. So if you believe deep in your heart that God raised him from the pit of death, you see, that phrase right there is the truth about who Jesus is. That's the gospel. If you believe the gospel and then confess, confess, and let me go back to that phrase there, confess allegiance to that truth, you'll be saved. That was absolute heresy to the Roman Empire. Now, I want to take the last few minutes that we've got And I want to talk about two very important facts. 
that I think a lot of us don't realize. Fact number one is the truth that we live by. Every one of us in here have an a ethic that we follow. Now, my, my friend Jerry Barber, and, and Jerry preached here for a while, Jerry has some insights into rules that I think are fascinating. Jerry says the problem with most of us is that our ethics are unconscious. In other words, what are the rules we live our lives by? Well, oftentimes we don't know what they are. Now, by the way, if you want to experience this, get married. When you get married, you marry into a family that's got a, set, a different set of rules that you, you do. Again, I've told this illustration, but, but it's so helpful here. I mean, we get back from our honeymoon. Mail finally starts showing up at our trailer there in Ripley, Mississippi. Letter comes in. It's addressed to June. In my family, whoever got the mail opened it, no matter who it was addressed to. If it was addressed to my mother, if I got the mail, I opened it. My dad, I opened it. I mean, whoever got the mail got to open the mail. Mail came. I was the one that got it. I opened a letter addressed to June. June comes in from work, she sees the letter, and she asks the most profound question I've ever heard. She said, who opened this letter? To which I said, me and you are the only people here. And then her next question was, why did you open that letter? And I said, it was in the mailbox. And she said, is that your name on it? And I said, well, the last part is, right? I discovered that if the letter wasn't addressed to you, you don't open it. That was a rule that was unconscious to me. I didn't know it was there. And to this day, I don't even open occupants. I don't even open that mail. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and by the way, oftentimes those rules are unspoken. She didn't explain that to me. I mean, before we got married, you don't open my mail. She didn't tell me. I know it now, but she didn't tell me. And by the way, that's the way a lot of our rules are. We have these rules, these ethics that we believe in, and we don't know why they're there. They're unspoken. They are understood, however. You know, in our family, birthdays simply meant cake. And the rule was whoever got there first got to cut it. I discovered that wasn't right. Unless it's your birthday, you don't cut the cake. And so I had to learn another rule that June understood fully well. And by the way, these are often contradictory. I mean, like I said, June's name, by the way, is on our gas bill. has been for 30 years. I mean, June Chapman. And so when the gas bill comes, June said, did you not open the gas bill? And I said, my name's not on it. <laughs> I'm serious, y'all. I don't open the gas bill. And she's like, you can open the gas bill. And I'm like, not according to your rules. <laughs> Contradictory. Now, I say this simply because all of us as followers of Jesus have committed to letting this be our ethic. And it's a lifetime learning it. It's a lifetime changing our ethic into the ethic of Christ. But here's the problem with this ethic. As much as we try to work on this ethic, there's a parallel ethic that's constantly challenging us. And that parallel ethic is called the ethic of loyalty. And what I mean by loyalty is the fact that oftentimes we have an ethic that we follow, but then we have loyalties that cause a constant contradiction in this ethic system that we follow. Notice, if you voice your allegiance, your loyalty to Jesus, but oftentimes there's this loyalty to other things that's challenging it. Loyalty to family. 
loyalty to your job, loyalty to an organization you're a part of. Watch the text here and how it works, this allegiance and loyalty. This is Acts 15, verse 5. Church is in a big turmoil. And the turmoil is over us Gentiles. I mean, we Gentiles are being invited into the kingdom of God, but there were certain Jews who said, no, you can't become a Christian unless you first become a Jew. So you Gentile men have got to be circumcised, and all of you Gentiles have got to keep the law. Look at the text. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, Christians, Pharisees, Christians, Pharisees, they're both. But here's the problem. Where's their loyalty? Is there loyalty to the Pharisees, that group of people, or to Jesus and the Christians? And if you'll notice in the text, their response is the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. James says no. Peter says no. Paul says no. Barnabas says no. Scripture says no. They said yes. Do you see where their loyalty is? And we find our loyalty constantly coming in conflict with our profession of faith in Jesus. I'll give you a very quick example and we'll conclude the lesson. Among us preachers, if you're not aware of the fact, but preachers oftentimes run in circles of influence, oftentimes around our Christian colleges. I mean, if someone says, oh, yeah, he graduated from Hardy, that tells you one thing. He graduated from Lipscomb. Oh, he's among those people. He graduated from Freed. Oh, no, not Freed. You know, y'all know what I mean. I mean, you get pigeonholed. And, and oftentimes your loyalty is to that group of people you were influenced by more so than you are if you're not careful to Jesus. I've heard preachers say in private, here's what I believe. And then a few minutes later, get up in a pulpit and preach right the opposite of it because they knew that the audience they were speaking to would never accept what they really believed. Happens more often than you realize. And it's this loyalty to the group that overwhelms our loyalty to Christ. That was the case with the Pharisees here. It's the case with a lot of us. Political loyalty, job loyalty, family loyalty. You just fill in the blanks. Isaiah saw a time in the future. And of course, it's a future having to do with the Messiah. And notice very yellow here. Before me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone. Loyalty will ultimately have to be in Jesus and Jesus only. That's why when you get over to Philippians, you have this beautiful text. That, that is this song of the first century. Therefore God exalted him, Jesus to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Yeshua, at the name of Yahweh saves. Look at what we do. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. We Americans, by the way, don't like to bow. Individualism is just one of those things that says you don't bow before anyone. And yet, Scripture says, yes, you do. You either will bow before Jesus now, or you'll bow before him at the end of time. And every tongue will eventually confess that he is who he claimed to be, that he is Jesus Christ the Lord to the glory of the Father. And so my question is simply a very simple one. Where's your loyalty? Is your loyalty to Jesus Christ and to him alone? 
If not, maybe it's time you reconsider where you need to place your loyalty. If you need to reconsider today, we're here to help you. You can do that right now. Let's get we stand.